Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Rwanda marked 25 years since the start of the genocide yesterday. President Paul Kagame lit a flame that will burn for 100 days at the Kigali Genocide Memorial. Let's talk about what happened 25 years ago and lessons learned with Timothy P. Longman. He is the author of Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. He's an associate professor of political science and international relations at Boston University. Thanks for joining us, Timothy. Good afternoon. Thanks for speaking with me. Uh, You were in Rwanda just before the genocide, and you were the head of the Human Rights Watch office in Rwanda just after the genocide. What was it like? Um, well, I watched the country fall apart in the year leading up to the genocide. Uh, there was uh, hope for political transition when I first got there in 1992. And by the time I left in 1993, there was a real fear of uh, ethnic violence and political violence that was possible. Um, so I, I wasn't shocked that the genocide happened, but I was shocked that it ended up being so brutal and so complete. Uh, when I went back in 1995 with Human Rights Watch, um, there was just extraordinary devastation. So many people had been killed, and many had been killed by people they knew. In some cases, you know, there were people that I had been friends with who were killed by other people that I knew from the same village. And the the brutality in the killing was was really just shocking. What do you think about the way it started? There's still mysteries that are, remain unsolved about who uh, killed the president in, in Rwanda. And there are all sorts of uh, different ideas about how the genocide ended when Paul Kagame came in and, and stopped the genocide with his, his rebel army. Uh, it, it still seems kind of un, unhistorically resolved. Yeah, we'll probably never know for certain uh, who shot the plane down that that killed the the president of Rwanda, Habir Mana, that served to launch the genocide. Um, the the crash site was blocked from investigation immediately after, and um, not, nobody admits having been involved in it. Um, what we do know for sure is that that was used then as an excuse to launch the genocide. And uh, we had a little over three months in which there was just this systematic slaughter of members of the minority ethnic group. And then the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which was a rebel group made up mostly of that group of the Tutsi, um, but people who were refugees from outside, spent its time um, attacking the country and successfully taking it over. So they ultimately put a stop to the genocide in July. Um, unfortunately, they themselves committed some war crimes. They weren't on the scale of genocide. They weren't as intentional and as brutal, but they, they killed tens of thousands of people as they were securing their own power. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a country that's, that's gone through a, a lot of suffering. You've written a book about uh, memory and justice in post-genocide Rwanda. And, you know, it's hard to say where we are exactly on that, too. I mean, there's been this long international criminal court proceeding um, in Rwanda. There were um, over a million cases that were tried by 12,000 community-based courts that were aimed at reconciliation. Uh, and that seems like a, a lot of attempt at justice and, and reconciliation. But at the same time, there's all the, you know there's this unusual reaction that the Kagame regime has had: laws against ethnic divisionism, genocide ideology is banned. Uh, there's an effort to erase ethnic divisions that really seems to just suppress things. Uh, how do you weigh what has happened in these ensuing 25 years? The rhetoric around Rwanda today tends to be really divided. People are either very much 
pro the current government, the Rwanda Patriotic Front, or they're completely critical of it. I, I actually fall somewhere in between. Um, I think the RPF has done some really good things. When they came to power, they did use quite a bit of violence, but after a couple of months, they, they really stopped doing that so extensively within the country um, and started using the judicial system. They started to arrest a lot of people and, and ultimately to put people on trial for genocide crimes. Um, they focused a lot on economic development, um, in part because of the international community's guilt over having failed to stop the genocide. Uh, a lot of money came in, and Rwanda invested it well. The government cracked down on corruption, and they used uh, international um, donors to help rebuild the country. So the country's got a great infrastructure. Um, there's been a really steady economic growth. Um, and then the country's also put an emphasis on some things like women's rights. Rwanda has the highest percentage of women in its parliament of any country in the world. It was the first country in the world to have more than half of its parliament be women. Um, and so there's, there's much to be praised. But on the other hand, uh, it's a very authoritarian government. The RPF is made up largely of uh, people from the Tutsi ethnic group, the group that was targeted during the genocide. Um, and they're really afraid to hand over power to the population because of the genocide um, and its history. And they're, they're worried that if they turn power over to the general population, they'll be slaughtered again. So um, on the one hand, they haven't been as brutal as they might have been. Um, but on the other hand, they're very intolerant of dissent. They, they don't want to be criticized. They don't want to be challenged. Uh, and um, they have assassinated quite a few people, including dissidents who've gone abroad, um, and they put a lot of people on trial. The, the trials themselves are really interesting. They did this grassroots type of trial called Gachacha, um, where they sort of built uh, loosely on a Rwandan traditional dispute mechanism, a resolution mechanism. Um, and they uh, tried people at the local level with, with the local community sitting in judgment. Uh, there were uh, 2 million cases nearly uh, in that and over 1 million uh, people who were tried in those cases. Um, and that allowed them to move people out of prisons and back into their community. So so that uh, was positive in some ways. But on the other hand, they were directed by the government in a, in a very authoritarian fashion. And so people felt really constrained. They were completely forbidden from being able to talk about crimes committed by the RPF. Um, and so there's a sense that what happened was Victor's justice um, – it was a necessary justice because the genocide was terrible. It was extraordinarily brutal. So there needed to be accountability. But uh, there's also a sense that the RPF has not been held accountable at all for its own crimes. So in Rwanda today, there's resentment on various sides, people who feel like justice was never served, uh, people who feel like they can't trust their neighbors because of the genocide and its, its legacy. So uh, I, I see the picture as mixed, some positive developments, but some lingering problems. Do you feel like the idea that you can suppress and erase ethnicity, is that something that's just going to come back and bite Rwanda with uh, another explosion of violence in the coming years? So... The, the government rightly notes that ethnic divisions um, were made worse by colonialism, that the colonial government, the Germans, and then the Belgians came in and they brought ideas about race that really helped to divide the groups much more sharply than they'd been divided before. Uh, and so they say these ethnic divisions aren't, aren't really deeply rooted in Rwandan history. Uh, and so they said, let's just get rid of them. Ethnicities caused nothing but problems. So let's just all be Banya Rwanda. Let's all be Rwandans today. Um, the problem is that at the same time they're saying that and they're banning people from being able to talk about ethnicity. Uh, you can be thrown in prison if you identify yourself by an ethnic label. Um, at the same time they're doing that, they're very conscious of their own Tutsi minority status. And they're afraid that they can't give up power, they can't turn things over 
in, in a really democratic system because if they do, they might be slaughtered again. And for the population, they really see contradictions. They see the government saying that ethnicity doesn't exist anymore and yet practicing its own form of ethnic discrimination. When people look at Rwanda today in particular, one of the things I found in, in my research was they worried a lot about economics and they have a sense that not just Tutsi, but the Tutsi who were outside of Rwanda who've come back and run the government and dominate the business sector and civil society, that they've all gotten rich while the rest of the population, whether they're genocide survivors or the Hutu, some of whom were perpetrators, that they're all staying poor. Uh, but you can't talk about that. And because you can't talk openly, it allows um, these issues to fester. Uh, on the other hand, I, I'm not really afraid of any imminent violence. Um, people look back at the genocide as a mistake. They see it as something horrible. They're ashamed of what they did. They don't want that to happen again. Um, they just want to have more of a voice and greater opportunity in their country. The government itself has has really tight control, and they use Singapore as a model. They hope if they can bring enough economic development that people won't care about the limitations to their to their human rights. Um, but uh, I'm a human rights activist, so for me that that is a, a recipe for for problems in the future. I wanted to ask quickly about the international reaction to this. And you had a nice piece in the Washington Post about Kofi Annan, who passed away recently. And he was the head of peacekeeping at the time. And part of his uh, guilt over this was to create a responsibility to protect, an idea that the international community has had a hard time with. Um, did the kind of infrastructure and reaction to the Rwandan genocide actually um, – did the actions made to prevent genocide in the future really amount to anything? I think the conversations were important. I think the idea that um, we can't allow something like the Rwandan genocide to happen again um, has changed people's thinking, and yet politics still tends to trump morality. Um, so the international community has made a commitment to stopping future genocides, and yet when we see things happening, like what's happening in Syria, in Yemen, in Myanmar – um, the international community still seems incapable of getting its act together because they worry about the politics of it. Um, and I think we're not at a point yet where politics um, trumps uh, – politics is, is subservient to our, our wider values. As a result, uh, a Rwandan genocide could happen again today somewhere else, and I'm afraid that, that we would do the same thing. We'd sit on the sidelines and not act. Timothy Longman is the author of Memory and Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. He's an associate professor of political science and international relations at Boston University. He was in Rwanda just before the genocide and was at the Human Rights Watch office in Rwanda just after the genocide. Thanks a lot for joining us. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Parliamentary elections in Israel are tomorrow. The future of the West Bank is now at stake. Over the weekend, Prime Minister Netanyahu said he would extend Israeli sovereignty to the settlements in the West Bank if elected. It's a bid to energize the prime minister's supporters on the right in a close election. It's also thought to dovetail with President Trump's long-awaited deal of the century. Let's get a Palestinian reaction to what's happening with Ambassador Hussam Zamlat. He is the head of the PLO mission in the United Kingdom. He's the former PLO head of mission in the United States and is currently the strategic affairs advisor to the president of Palestine, Mahmoud Abbas. Thanks for joining us, Ambassador Zamlat. Thank you very much for having me. 
I wanted to ask your reaction to what's happened over the weekend because people have been talking about this idea of extending sovereignty into the West Bank and in, in, in a kind of rolling manner, you know, possibly first with the big settlements and then moving on to Area C or whatever. Um, what is your reaction to this? This is something that is happening to a place um, you thought you had sovereignty over. Of course, and this is in line with uh, the Trump administration's actions since they started two years ago. Uh, it is in line with, uh, you know, foregoing all that we have built, uh, destroying international framework and legitimacy, uh, destroying the prospects uh, for peace only uh, to appease the Sheldon Adelson, the casino guru like people in the U.S., and also to uh, give uh, Netanyahu uh, a gift just before elections, which are happening in the coming few days. This is just electioneering, and for the purpose of electioneering, we are wrecking, this administration is wrecking every uh, prospect for uh, future uh, peace. This administration has uh, from day one uh, sought to uh, denationalize the Palestinian issue, you know, closing our diplomatic mission in Washington, de-recognizing the Palestinian people and the Palestinian uh, leadership, closing and shuttering the U.S. Consulate General that has been there since 1844, representing the U.S. in Palestine. Uh, and being the main uh, uh, contact point between the two people and the two governments, and now turning it into only a Palestinian affair unit in the U.S. embassy uh, to Israel, which was illegally relocated uh, to uh, Jerusalem. So in a nutshell, really, this is a very, very uh, bad moment for the prospects of peace. But when the uh, deal of the century comes along, if Prime Minister Netanyahu is re-elected, and they present that to you, it will be presented um, as a fait accompli. There won't be any negotiations with you. And you will do what? We know nothing about uh, the so-called ultimate deal. Uh, we know about other ultimates. Uh, we know about the uh, ultimate promise that was issued to us in the 70s and the 80s by the U.S.-led international community. That ultimate promise was about us accepting international legitimacy, uh, recognizing Israel inside the 1967 uh, borders, which we did, and produced the Oslo uh, peace uh, process. That led to the ultimate compromise that we, the Palestinians, did. It was a very painful compromise to forego 78% of what we consider to be our own land for the sake of achieving uh, peace. And that ultimate compromise has led to the Oslo peace process and before it, the Madrid uh, peace process. But that brings us to the third ultimate, which is the ultimate failure of the Oslo peace process, not because of the framework, but because of the procedure, primarily uh, being stuck in a asymmetric bilateral uh, negotiations where the stronger party was dictating its will and its greed, and also only mediated by the U.S., where Israel has a big advantage in influencing uh, the course of action and where the U.S. Uh, is going. And therefore, now we are in the ultimate distraction or the ultimate retraction, if I may use that term, um, because of the Trump administration. They have retracted on the ultimate promise. And they are endangering the ultimate compromise of the Palestinians. And in fact, this ultimate retraction has seen the devastation, the dismantlement of everything we have known on the very principle of international legality, which is the illegality of acquiring land by force. Uh, and therefore, now we are in the uh, in the ultimate consequence of all of that. And primarily, the ultimate consequence is that President Abbas, the Palestinian leadership, the Palestinian people want to move forward, but want to change course. No longer we believe change can come from Israel. The Israeli society is comfortable with the occupation. Not only that, they are profiting 
from the use of more than 60% of our land in the occupied territories, from the use of our natural resources, water, from the mining of our phosphate from the Dead Sea, from extracting oil uh, from many villages in the West Bank, from actually uh, uh, collecting taxes that should go to the Palestinian Authority in 60% of the West Bank. We estimate more than $350 million every year loss of revenues to the Palestinian Authority that goes to the budget uh, of the Israeli occupation. And therefore, we must also target this uh, profitability, if you may, of the situation, this economic comfort that has shown itself in this very happening elections in Israel, which Strangely, the the occupation controlling the lives of more than 5 million Palestinians did not factor a bit in all of these elections. It tells you about the state of comfort of the status quo and wanted it to continue. So the change has to come from outside. And that's why we will defend internationalism. We will defend multilateralism. This goes beyond Israel-Palestine. This is about us as a human family. This is about where do we want to see conflicts being resolved. We have built this international system at the wounds and the lessons of the Second World War because of the horrors that humanity has been through. And therefore, we Palestinians stand tall and firm with the international law. This is about time that the international community is sitting on the table. I'm talking with Ambassador Hussam Zamlat. He is the head of the PLO mission to the United Kingdom right now. And we're talking about what happened over the weekend with Prime Minister Netanyahu saying he'd extend sovereignty over Israel's settlement in the West Bank if elected. I wanted to ask a question about what it was like to be in the United States as the head of the PLO mission in the United States and then get asked to leave by the Trump administration. Um, He rejected your visa and had the office shut down. What what was that experience like? Uh, It was really uh, full of energy and excitement. I mean, since I started my mission as uh, a Palestinian uh, envoy to the U.S., as the ambassador, Every single morning, I would wake up with a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, because uh, Trump is something and America is something else. America is a country that is full of opportunities, of knowledge, of curious people, of real human beings who want to know the truth. The engagements have been at all levels, be it the political in the Congress, be it the civil and the human rights organizations, be it the media, be it the youth in the campuses and the universities, be it the various uh, mosaic of the American society. Uh, It was it was really uh, heartwarming and inspiring to keep engaging. Every morning, I would just sit feeling that I need 36 hours every day, not 24 hours, to cover all this. Therefore, the decision to shatter our embassy, our mission in Washington, uh, had left me with a feeling of really regret and uh, regret that we could have just engaged the U.S. public much more. And this is exactly the reason why our office was uh, shattered and why uh, we are not allowed to come back to the U.S. and why I will be giving the lecture, the annual lecture of the Chicago University via video conference, because they want to stifle the debate. They want to stifle our our voice. They don't want us to pre- to represent uh, uh, our people. And by the way, the damage by the, the Trump administration is not just the government-to-government relationship, which is very severe, but the people to people. I was invited by the U.S. government as a young man in the in the 90s to visit the U.S. on an international young leaders program. I spent a few years at Harvard uh, being a, a, visiting, a visiting scholar. I cannot begin to tell you how much that has enriched me and put me in touch 
uh, with the ordinary Americans, put me in touch with the American opportunity and dream and real uh, progress. But all that is being under severe pressure right now. Uh, the, the real damage is also intended to be in the people-to-people uh, relationship. So uh, uh, we believe that we must not lose sight. We must double our engagement with the American people. And that's why I'm doing this speaking tour. And we will continue engaging the American people until one day, and hopefully not far from now, we will set back our relationship on its very natural course, which is that of a historic relationship between two people who believe in the very same values. Ambassador Hussein Zamlat is head of the PLO mission in the UK, former head of the PLO mission in the US, and he'll be speaking on Thursday at 12.30 at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Via video conference, he'll be making the Reverend Dr. Richard L. Pearson lecture. And thanks very much for joining us and talking about the current events. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The German statesman Otto von Bismarck once said that laws are like sausages. If you like them, chances are you'd rather not see how they were made. But there's one company that wants you to see how they make their sausages, literally. Applegate Meats, which is known for its antibiotic-free deli meats, has started something called the New Food Collective. They're making sausages using something called regenerative, regenerative, <laughs> regenerative agriculture. They're available at Whole Foods in Chicago, and WBEZ's Monica Eng recently talked with Applegate Vice President Gina Asugadian to find out more. Thanks, Jerome. So when I heard about these sausages that are supposed to help regenerate the earth, I was intrigued. I mean, I'd gotten Applegate ham and turkey for my kids' lunches for years, but this sounded like a different step. So I started by asking Gina Sudigan why they decided to get into the sustainable sausage market. Well, I think it all started with Applegate as a company looking to how we're going to evolve our mission going forward. So our mission has always been changing the meat we eat. And in the beginning, that meant, you know, removing nitrites. It was really focused on ingredients, clean ingredients. And then it evolved into taking antibiotics out of the food system. Um, So we were one of the first companies to sell antibiotic-free meat. And then as the marketplace began to catch up and more and more companies started to either remove antibiotics from their systems or use them responsibly, we thought, okay, what is the next evolution? And, um, you know, I brought to the company the idea of regenerative agriculture. And so for those people out there who don't understand what regenerative agriculture is, can you talk more about that? Sure. So it's a system that really, I think, is very much in line with nature. So it understands that there's a symbiotic relationship between plants and animals. And animals in this system are used as tools to help build soil to, and to sequester carbon in the soil. So it's a way to raise animals slash meat 
that's actually good for the environment. And so what kind of guidelines do people have to employ in order to be considered farmers and and ranchers and producers who practice regenerative agriculture? And are there any particular standards or regs? Well, right now, what the standard that we're looking to is the land-to-market label. We want our products to be carrying that label. And I feel like the Savory Institute is the one that we're really looking into to, to that, that really lays out the principles of regenerative agriculture. And, and, and just to put it out there, I mean, this is something that it's going to take time to get to this point. There are practices and principles that, that farmers have to put into practice that can help their land. It's, it's almost returning to this point where farmers and ranchers need to learn how to read the land and, you know, use animals as tools on that land to help rebuild soil and sequester carbon and and make those improvements. The Savory Institute has a program called the Ecological Outcomes Verification Program, and that's criteria that farmers use to take measurements on their land. And the only way that you can carry that land to market label is if you show measurable improvements in those criteria. So in soil health, in biodiversity, in water retention, um, things like that. And what I love about that label, it's like the only first outcomes-based seal that there is. So, so many other labels that you see are process-based. You, you know, check the boxes that you're following a certain practice and you carry the label where this one is like you have to actually prove that you've made measurable improvements to the land in order to carry that seal. Can you talk about, you know, really concrete things that people might be doing to help sequester carbon or to help regenerate the soil? Sure. So it's really using animals as a tool on the land, rotationally grazing them. So, you know, animals will eat the grass. They digest and ferment it in their rumen. The manure goes onto the land. The animals then trample that into the soil, aerating it and creating air pockets for water retention and then helping to regenerate another, you know, cycle of life with the plants. And then the land is allowed to rest and then the animals move into another paddock. And is, are some of those same practices used for hogs as well? Well, that's interesting because where Applegate is is trying to make inroads here is what is regenerative agriculture going to look like when raising pigs? That's something we're going to have to, you know, learn and figure out as we're doing it. I mean, there will be some principles that we have to follow according to the Savory Institute, but this is going to be, you know, we're going to have to see how, how to, you know, really manage these systems, learn by doing Okay, because so it seems like this is a little more developed when it comes to um, grazing animals and ruminants like cows or goats, but that, that's super-duper interesting. Now, I understand that food journalist Jane Black was involved in this. How did that work? Jane and I met several years ago, and it was through an introduction to the then founder and CEO, Stephen McDonald, and he wanted Jane to be on our team because of the fact that she was a journalist and 
She had an understanding of food and food systems that would take almost that kind of journalistic approach to things, probing, pushing, and she has done just that. So talk to me about the delicious end of this. I have been trying these sausages, and I have been so impressed. You know, the Lunar New Year, I'm half Chinese, recently went by, and when my kids saw that there was a sausage that had scallions and ginger in it, they're like, wow, this is going to taste just like, you know, the dumplings we've had. And then I tried the spicy Italian last night, fantastic to make uh, sort of a, a bolognese or a sauce with a lot of fennel and uh, tomatoes and cream. How did you develop these flavors? Thank you so much for saying that because I think so much work has gone into this idea of how can we bring craft production to scale? You know, how can we create a sausage that's delicious, you know, has a clean flavors and, and that, that really comes through that kind of coarse grind that you see in, you know, a sausage that you buy at a butcher shop or in a farmer's market. Like, how can we do that at scale? That's been sort of the impetus behind all of this. It's not something that's really talked about a lot, but the, really the flavor starts at the farm level. Part of what I love about regenerative agriculture, raising animals outside and outdoors, is that they produce meat that's actually very, very flavorful. It's really funny because, you know, there's this idea of pork is the other white meat. But actually, when you look at pastured pork, it's this deep, rosy red color. It almost looks like beef, and it's very marbled and flavorful. The other thing is that sausage is sort of this ultimate utilizer for various different parts of an animal, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to scale this kind of system in any way that's efficient, we need a product like that. We're used to this idea that we can just buy parts of animals whenever we want and that they should be readily available. But if you're really going to scale a new type of system and have it be in any way, shape, or form affordable, there has to be a use for every part, that there shouldn't be any waste, you know, to use each part of it. You know, I feel like it honors the life of the animal. So can you tell me where people could find this? I know we can find it in Chicago's Whole Foods. Are you going to expand it? Whole Foods has been generous enough to offer us a test market in the Chicago area. And if that product sells well there, I'm sure they'll be willing to help us expand it into other regions. And um, and so that's the idea. So these are the new food collective sausages in Whole Foods in the Chicago area and uh, possibly going to the rest of the nation. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Monica. I appreciate it.